This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. So as you can probably hear <clears throat> from my voice, um, I've had a, a, a little bit of a rough go of it this past little more than a week, um, been battling a, a little bout of COVID, but I'm on the upswing. So I apologize for the voice. Hopefully it'll be back uh, real soon. Um, but I wanted to get this out. I was super excited to get this one out here is the first of three episodes following the fact and the fiction of a legend behind legends. But it's not like we're pushing William's Conquering aside. In fact, our protagonist story is not only directly because of William's actions in the North during the winter of 1069 to 1070, but it also directly shifts William's focus and actions after 1070. We begin with a questionable origin story, questionable at best, before diving headfirst into a legend. Today's episode, episode 90, is entitled Harroward the Outlaw. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Legends are a funny thing when you think about it. Legends represent the best and sometimes the worst of us. They embody what we strive to become or what we strive to keep at bay. You know, either way, they endure the years and centuries and sometimes millennia and become an integral part of a culture's identity. Legends are old, like, like really, really old. They tell of an event or even a person who transcended his or her times and became a model of how to endure and overcome. They can show us how to conquer. They can show us how to help. They can show us how to heal. And they can show us how to serve. But the key word there is endure. Legends endure. They last. They carry on in the minds of the people who feel compelled for whatever reason to share that story from one generation to the next. Something within that culture needs that story for some reason. In fact, the longer the story is told, the stronger the le- that legend fuses to the very backbone of that culture and becomes a central piece to the nerve center of that culture. Its customs come to depend on the lessons from that story. Its people come to depend on the models of these heroes and leaders and just regular citizens, citizenry sometimes, from that story. That culture's core identity comes to revolve around that particular story to some important degree. Legends are not simply fanciful stories for entertaining, though they are that. Legends serve a greater purpose, one that one or two or even three generations cannot even come close to claiming the fame of its origin. Legends are, at first, simple stories. They are retellings of something important. But they are not just the property of that first generation to tell it. They belong to every single generation to embrace it thereafter. No one generation, as I said, can lay claim to a legend. Legends belong to the entirety of a culture. And a culture does not occur in one specific place and time, as we know. Cultures span the ages. They evolve and they transcend. And sometimes they take a step back before evolving again. Just as legends do. 
and they both feed the other in this ever twisting, you know, double helix relationship that makes up that culture's again, backbone and central nervous system. When poked, the legend reacts. When prodded, the legend evolves. When needed, the legend is called upon to remind both listeners and tellers alike of some of the core tenets of that culture. At its most basic, the legend serves to inform, to remind. So when we come across figures like the protagonist of this episode and the next, and of course the one after, we have to ask ourselves, what can this legend possibly remind us about the culture that created it and embraced it for nearly 1,000 years? 1,000 years. That is a long, long time. For perspective, that's pretty much half the age of Christianity itself from where we're standing right now today in early 2023. It's around 700 years older than the United States of America. It's the same amount of time, give or take a century or so, from today as it was from the first emperor of Rome. Its endurance is remarkable. At the end of the third episode of this series, when we wrap up this our protagonist's story here, I'd like to remind ourselves of that core question. What can this legend possibly remind us about the culture that created it and again embraced it for nearly 1,000 years? His name was Hereward, but history knows him as Hereward the Wake. He was born in the early to mid-1040s, so by the time of... William's invasion of England, he would have been a, at least 20 years old. His name, Hereward, is a combination of two Anglo-Saxon words, Her, H-E-R-E, meaning army, and Ward, W-A-R-D, having a connotation of, um, you know, defending or warding off something. Hereward essentially means he who wards off armies, essentially. <laughs> And given his legend, it seems he lived up to his name. Coincidence? Maybe. However, as we know about the 11th century, uh, there's not much to be said about his origins. So let me repeat what I feel like I've said a hundred times already on the podcast. The beginnings of insert name here. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, It really is that formulaic when compiling histories from the medieval period I'm learning Let me try it again. The beginnings of Hereward's life are shrouded in mystery. Yeah, that sounds more like it. You know, when I actually start getting to childhoods that are better documented, I should scarcely know what to do about it, to be honest. Anyway, some of the more trustworthy interpretations of the records have him born to a well-to-do thane in Bourne in southern Lincolnshire. But even those more trustworthy interpretations aren't exactly correct either. Using the available records left to us, even the fact that he was born in Bourne, yes, I understand how that sounds, is left to questioning. However, the fact that Hereward comes from southern Lincolnshire is pretty well accepted. His parents were most likely Leofrich and Adiva, or Adiva. And more keen-eared listeners will have noticed that sounds an awful lot like Leofrich and Godiva, the Earl of Mercia and his beautiful wife. 
the parents of Earl Elfgar, who was nothing short of a spur in the side of the Godwinsons for years, as well as the grandparents of Earls Edwin and Mer- of Mercia and Morcar of Northumbria. Yeah, it's that family. Despite what one family claimed centuries later, Hereward was no son of the Earl and his beautiful and legendary wife. This inf- unfortunate interpretation, an interpretation if you ask me, that was not not only untrue but intentionally dishonest so as to gain a foothold in English history. Family histories are like that. This has led to a great many misinterpretations by scholars in future generations. See, Earl Elfgar is clearly the only surviving child of Earl Leofrich and his wife Lady Godiva, or Godkefu, as she was called at the time. The fact that Hereward's parents shared the noble couple's names is mere coincidence, as the names Leofrich and Godiva, or, again, Godkefu, were as common as, say, Michael's and Ava's are for people today. Seems like there's a dime a dozen of them. There were simply an abundance of people and only so many Anglo-Saxon names to go around, so you're bound to have some names more popular than others. Every, ever notice how many Leofriches there were during the popularity of Earl Leofrich? Or Williams there were during the reign of Duke-slash-King William of Normandy? And England. <laughs> or Matildas in the 11th century, the number of Matildas. Heralds? Yeah. So I've learned to be wary when seeing the name in the records multiple times. I I just can't assume it's the same one, even if they reside or own property in the same area as the more famous one. You just can't make that assumption. You got to dig a bit. So as for Harroward's origins, let's wrap this bundle of chaos into a nice neat package here before moving on. Harroward was again born to a semi-influential and certainly wealthy thane in Lincolnshire named Leofrich, and to his wife, Adiva, or Adiva. In fact, that's very likely the case. And to add to his pedigree, his father was related to two powerful figures of the time. The first is his uncle, Hereward's great-uncle, Ralph the Staller. You might remember that name, maybe. Uh, now, Ralph the Staller, born in 1011, was a major landowner in both King Edward's and King William's courts, which is a testament to the man himself. A staller, by the way, is the English equivalent at the time to the rank of constable in France. So Ralph the staller was a man seen to have valuable insight and was worthy of a high level of responsibility when it came to the king's security, as well as the management of his household. This was a position he held under Edward alone, but somehow he managed to be one of the handful or so, and I mean handful or so, of Englishmen who survived the many, many Norman purges after Hastings, even having fought against William at Hastings to boot. William, for whatever reason, elevated Ralph the Staller to Earl Ralph of East Anglia. Now, aside from Ralph the Staller, Hereward had, as I said, one more major connection to the English political machine. However, this one was on the ecclesiastic side of things. Hereward was also the nephew of one Abbot Brand of Peterborough. Abbot Brand, he held some solid sway in the kingdom under King Edward, but his luck sadly would run out after the conquest, or specifically after Hastings, when he threw his support under uh, the 
Edgar Effling, the king for a day, you could say. Uh, but put that one on, put, put Abbott Brand on the back burner for now, yeah? So again, what do we know so far? Harroward, soon to be called The Wake, son of a fairly wealthy and influential Thane in Lincolnshire, born early to mid-1040s, happened to have serious connections both on the secular and the ecclesiastic side of things. I repeat because these are going to piece together for the next three episodes. Okay. Now, it's also worth mentioning, if for any reason, for my own inner historian's sake, <clears throat> the main sources we have for Harroward's life. The Peterborough Chronicle and the Liber Aliensis are two major sources, but the most well-known and cited is the Gesta Harrowardi, or The Life of Harroward, which is a document outlining both the myths, a whole lot of myths actually, and a little bit of the history surrounding Harroward the Wake, written in Latin in the earliest years of the 12th century, mere decades after the death of Harroward himself. The Gesta Harrowardi, written in Ely, under the supervision of Bishop Hervey, who held the bishopric during the first decades of the 12th century, is said to actually derive its material from, get this, an original Old English text. Now, unfortunately, this Old English document does not exist, so far as we found. And to add to our overall confusion of names in the 11th century, this Old English text, this original story, was written by a man named <laughs> Leofric. Uh, he was a priest within Harroward's own household in the waning years of the 11th century. Either way, having a document so close to the historical source is invaluable to our understanding of this man. But it's not perfect. Not in the least bit, actually. But it's what we have. Now, one other document appears centuries and centuries later and is one of those documents that maintains that, that misinterpretation that Harroward was the son of Earl Leofric of Mercia. So when it comes to actual events, I use it very, very carefully. But it has some great lines in it. So if I quote it, it's merely to add to the legend status of the story. Uh, this, this document, this book really, is called Harroward the Wake, and it was published in 1866 by Charles Kingsley. This book states, quote, the heroic deeds of Highlanders, both in these islands and elsewhere, have been told in verse and prose, and not more often nor more loudly than they deserve. But we must remember, now and then, that there have been heroes likewise in the lowland and in the fen, end quote. See? I mean, good stuff. <laughs> really elevates Harroward's story, doesn't it? So this simple excerpt sets Harroward apart from the, you know, from other heroes from various cultures, English included, uh, but cultures around the world as well. It sets the expectation that Harroward's story deserves a place among the heroes of old. So regardless of the source, it seems Harroward wasn't exactly uh, getting to his origins, wasn't exactly the model son of Leofric of Lincolnshire. Harroward was short, and he was stocky, but as solid as a man could be built. He was stout, and he, he cut a formidable figure by all accounts. He was a rabble-rouser by nature, and, and he was a natural leader of men, though. Unfortunately, men like this tended to attract other 
malcontents for the most part. His small band certainly caused a level of havoc among his father's tenants. In fact, it's said that Hereward and his buddies held the community somewhat hostage to their antics and occasional bullying. The Gesta Herewardi describes him like this, quote, As a boy, he was remarkable for his figure and handsome in his features, very fine with his long, blonde hair, open face and large eyes, the right one slightly different from the left in bluish color, end quote. Don't forget that detail about the eyes, by the way. In addition to these features, he was agile and exceptionally strong, and Hereward apparently loved to wrestle. On the flip side of that, though, he wasn't exactly the best sport. The Crowland Chronicles, another good source, states that when Hereward lost, he wasn't the most gracious of losers. He, quote, very often obtained with the sword that which by the mere strength of his arm he was unable, end quote. In short, yeah, Hereward was, he was a punk, he was a bully, he was a thug by, by so many accounts growing up. And by the time he was 17 years old, he had built up quite a local reputation, as you can imagine. In fact, this would be the late 1050s, and his antics began spilling out beyond his father's sphere of influence, and even his father's Earl's sphere of influence, and seems how Earl Elfgar was already a thorn in the side of both King Edward and his rival, Earl Harold Godwinson. Well, Harold's father couldn't afford such stress. I mean, what kind of antics would cause this much negative attention, you ask? Well, one source has Harold collecting taxes owed to his father. Okay, on the surface, that seems fair enough. Even historically accurate, as one's sons could be entrusted to do such an errand for his noble father. That's, that's certainly a fact. The problem with Harold helping out dear old dad, and, you know, I'll go out. I'll run out and get those taxes for you, Pops. Well, the problem with that was that dear old dad did not task him with that particular responsibility. So Harold here would rally his merry band of reveling followers, and he would go door to door within his father's properties and collect those taxes before his father's appointed collectors would show up to collect. Yeah, Harold straight up stole his own father's income on many occasions. And when he participated in one of Earl Elfgar's several challenges to the king's authority, Harold's father had become fed up with his son's, uh, as the Crowland Chronicle states, quote-unquote, acts of excessive violence against his neighbors. Now, in such cases, a king's prerogative was simply to imprison or put to death such audacity, especially from the son of a local thane. However, Thane Leofrich approached King Edward himself and pleaded to simply exile his son. And as we know, King Edward was a gigantic fan of exiling his nobility. But we also know that the word exile to King Edward never really meant exile. Put that one on the back burner for a minute too, yeah? So off Harroward went, exiled to parts unknown, to seek fortunes elsewhere, far, far away from home, to live a life ripped from the familiarity of home. Off he went to Cornwall. 
Okay, so first the obvious needs to be stated. Uh, for those that may not know, uh, Cornwall was not a place where Hereward would have been exiled to for a number of reasons. Not only was Cornwall a part of Edward's kingdom, but at the time it was also firmly within the sphere of the House of Godwin. As we know, Elfgar rarely just caused a stink with the king only. No, many of his gripes were aimed at the the power structure, you know, at his most powerful, at the most powerful family in the whole kingdom next to the kings. And Harold Godwinson, who, if you remember, was married into the king's uh, family through his sister. Well, Harold Godwinson was often Elfgar's real target. Cornwall was squarely within Earl Harold Godwinson's purview, so there would be absolutely no exiling Harold to Cornwall. I mean, it wasn't even outside of the kingdom, let alone it was right smack in the middle of his enemy's territory. Can't quite wrap my head around how that claim stuck through the centuries, but more than that, the placement of Harroward in Cornwall, though rife with other inconsistencies, served a couple important purposes for Harroward's legend. First, it showed the physical and mental agility of the man to survive doomed situations. And second, it showed that there were still places within the kingdom that seemed semi-mythical and even mysterious. Devon and Cornwall, jutting way off to the west of Alfred's Wessex throughout very early English history, certainly held such a mystique into the 11th century. For this period of Harroward's life, though, at least his life in story form, the term exile should be supplanted, I think, with outlaw. I believe Harroward was declared an outlaw instead of an exile, which both have slightly different connotations, legally speaking, and it lends credence to Harroward being referred to as an outlaw as well later on. And if you remember from very early in the podcast, during the first bend in our narrative detailing the Danish conquest of England, to be declared an outlaw didn't exactly equate to exile. To be exiled was to be sent outside of the kingdom altogether, though your properties could be maintained by your family. Could, not always could. However, to be outlawed meant you could stay within the realm, though not only were your properties handed straight over to the king, but your life is quite simply to be lived outside the law. Meaning someone could do pick a crime. They could murder you and not be charged with the crime of murder. Or any crime, for that matter, because you were simply not subject to the protections of the king's law. Having risen up with Elfgar, we suspect, along with his issues with his own father, this earned Harroward the auspicious title of outlaw, most likely. Which meant it was it was wise to get, to be quite honest, it was wise to get the hell out of Dodge as quickly as possible. Either way, the Gesta Harrowardi narrates, uh, Harroward was made an outlaw and he made his way to Cornwall. Okay. However, there's a strange insert between him leaving Lincolnshire and arriving in Cornwall. <laughs> All right. Seems like a pretty straight, uh, what, what would you say, a south southwesterly uh, orientation, right? See, apparently, Harroward clearly had no sense of direction because he heads to Cornwall by way of Northumbria. Yeah, someone get this man a map, please. 
Now, it's said that while in Northumbria, he was walking along a road, minding his own business, when he heard the scream of a damsel in distress, showing a little bit of that future romanticism behind his legend. Now, before we know it, Hereward has single-handedly wrestled a fierce bear, yeah, a bear, into submission. The lady thanks him, and he continues on his way. I'm assuming the lady also grabbed him by the shoulders and turned him in exactly the opposite direction he was headed in, slapped him on his backside and told him Cornwall was that way, but I'm not sure the sources uh, on that are a little muddled. But yeah, the guy wrestled a bear, defeated it, saved a woman. Random, right? This story's just getting started, trust me. But just pay attention to how this narrative unfolds and you'll find a familiar yet effective piece of propaganda on his behalf. So far, he's a spoiled brat, a ruffian born to privilege who wreaks havoc at home and throughout his neighborhood, you could say, embarrasses his parents, stirs the ire of some pretty important people. He gets kicked out, wanders aimlessly, (laughs) clearly, uh, until he devolves into his most basic animal state wrestling and subduing a massive apex predator with his bare hands. Yes, the pun is shamelessly intended. We see our hero at his lowest, lowest in both his luck and, again, his base nature. He is no longer even a stereotype. His civility has been stripped. He is no better than that bear. But his saving grace is that he rescued a woman in need, and this maintains him as our evolving hero in this narrative. That's what we love about our legends, our heroes, is that they are constantly evolving. They're overcoming, and in order to overcome and evolve, you've got to start down low. You've got to make mistakes. He's not here. He's not just a low man in nature. He has that one redeeming quality about him, causing us to root for him, even if only for a moment, at least at this point in the story. We don't have to like him yet. Believe me, it's understandable if you don't. But he saves a lady in need, and this is universally honorable. He has that to grasp onto as we tell the rest of his story. So Harroward arrived in Cornwall shortly afterwards, and there two people pop onto our radar. A lovely princess, another anachronism, by the way, as Cornwall abandoned their royal structure by this point, having been, again, assimilated into England, and a quote-unquote very wicked and arrogant man, so the guest to Harrowardy says. Now, a paper written by Rolf H. Bremer Jr. called the Gesta Herowardi, Transforming an Anglo-Saxon into an Englishman, published in 2007, and I found it on the website academia.edu, See, is where I also found some great insight into the Gesta Herowardi. It offers the following. The wicked and arrogant man's name was Ulsus Phoreus. Now look closely and you'll see the narrator's flair for the fantastical here. From the Latin ulcus, we have the English word for sore, S-O-R-E, sore. And it's also where the English word ulcer comes from. While the Latin phoreus gives us the English word cruel. If I'm giving off Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson vibes here, 
by ruining the story, I apologize, overanalyzing it. <laughs> Just trying to give both devils, fact and fiction, their dues in order to, you know, better understand how Harroward's story, again, informs the culture it came from. So anyway, this Alsus Phoreus fella, he's some famed warrior throughout Cornwall, and he's betrothed to the princess. But the Cornish princess was trying her best to squirrel out of this betrothal because of who this guy was. Alsus Phoreus was a nasty, brutish man. Besides, she was already in love with a man from Waterford. Yes, Waterford, way over there in Ireland. And he, this guy was a Danish-Irish nobleman named Sigtrid. So the scene is laid for us to check out Harroward's adventures in the wilds of Cornwall. However fanciful its details tend to be, but a quick word about a name that appears in another telling of Harroward's story. Let's look at the name Ulsus Phoreus just one more time. See, another account says that the man this Cornish princess is married to, this man's name is Hako. We tend to use a soft C, believe it or not, when we shouldn't. I was doing that purposefully here when I was saying Ulsus Phoreus. I know the language of English is an absolute mess of a language. And believe me, I say this with all the love in the world. I say that sincerely. Truly, I love this language, but what I love most about it is its absolute, what an absolute catastrophe it is in many ways. This is a Germanic amalgamation that evolved alongside Frankish and Scandinavian before heading to the islands by the Angles, Jutes, and Saxons. Upon arrival, a couple centuries of Scots Gaelic and Irish evolved it further. Then the time of Alfred and the Dane law, which survived up until William's arrival, brought an influx of new sounds and words and phrases into the language. By 1066, English maintains, really Anglo-Saxon specifically, maintains its Frankish Germanic foundation. But make no mistake, it has heavy doses of Irish, Gaelic, Norse, Danish, but then William comes along and gets the ball rolling on a massive overhaul, a wave of romantic French, and I'm not referring to that hilariously misogynistic skunk either, which in turn has millennia of Greek influences behind it. Yeah, again, English, <laughs> I say with love, is an absolute mess. A big, beautiful mutt of a language. That's my take anyway, and I proudly explain it this way to my students when they vent their frustrations over rules that are good to memorize, but always have exceptions. For our purposes here, I'm referring to the rule on when to use a soft C again. You use a soft C, or S sound, when the letter C is followed by an I, Y, or E, as in city, cycle, or race. However, if any other letter follows the letter C, then you automatically use the K sound, that K sound, right? As in cast, call, class, camera, coast, click, cone, care, and possibly most importantly for what we're talking about here, words like cure, cut, cute, cuss, or even custard. I think of Matt Smith, fish sticks and custard. So why is it so natural for us to look at the word U-L-C-U-S and say ulcus and not ulcus? The letter C in 
alsus is not followed by the letters I, Y, or E, so it's followed by the letter U. So why do we use the soft C? Serious question. See, in Latin, which I did study for just two years in college, but I'd like to think I remembered this much. In Latin, the letter C was almost always pronounced as a K sound, like a hard K. So in this case, the name U-L-C-U-S would definitely be pronounced Alcus. And when translating it back and forth between Latin and Old English and Latin and Middle English and Latin and Modern English, huh, who's to say that both accounts of Hereward's time in Cornwall that mention the men Alcus Phoreus and Hako weren't the same men? In the other account, Hako was the brutish man the Cornish princess was betrothed to, and this is where I find common ground amongst two accounts. I mean, this this is the painstaking sort of, I mean, some of you may be thinking, really, get, I mean, seriously, you're, you're really taking this way too seriously here, but my understanding when I read something is to understand something, and if I can start to make connections or ask a question that my answer may be wrong to it, but it gets the ball rolling on somebody else thinking about, you know, something that leads to the right answer, then it's worth it to me. This is, this is how I approach the material, even down to the words sometimes. It's not perfect, but I hope, I hope you find it helpful at least. So when it comes to these two guys, Alcus and Hako, I'd say between translations, I'm going to proceed here as if they're the same person. Either way, back to the story. Sigtrig was, as you can imagine, none too happy about the betrothal of his Cornish love and the man we're, we're going to from now on just to refer to as Hako, and he made his feelings well known. While that love triangle was coming to a boil in the background, Hereward spent months and months creating quite a name for himself there in Cornwall. He became the focus of the princess's obsession, but not in that way you might be thinking. See, she certainly saw him as a formidable man, a warrior, a man who could save her, here it is, save her from her current predicament. Now, unlike other damsel in distress stories, she wasn't looking at him as her love interest. Well, simultaneously becoming the focus of the princess's desires for freedom inevitably resulted in Hako's ire. Well, mainly because men are just big dumb animals sometimes. See, Hako was big man on the Cornish campus, and Here's this Mercian coming in and challenging his status. In response, Hako sends a trusted warrior to defend his honor in a wrestling match. Hereward wastes no time in dispatching this upstart, which does nothing but increase both Hako's ire and the princess's desire for him, that is, his help. But see, a strange detail here emerges on the page as the author felt the need to explain just exactly where the sword entered Hereward's opponent's body. Well, cutting to the meat of it, ugh, pun definitely not intended there. Hereward does a very unchivalric thing, and he, well, he cuts right to the meat of the other guy. Yeah, stabbed him right in the junk. Such behavior was not, uh, wasn't just not appreciated. It was downright dishonorable, somewhat akin to the modern rule in boxing that anything below the waist is strictly forbidden. 
And for anyone who hasn't experienced why, <laughs> well, just wait. It's bound to happen sometime. But beyond that, Hereward didn't just kill this man. He symbolically, well, he symbolically cut through the man's bloodline. And this was no small thing. That's what she, nope, nope, won't do it. You're better than that, Jonathan. You're better than that. Okay, back on track. Such a move, accidental or not, was seen as a less than worthy way to fight. And Hereward was hastily thrown into prison for it. However, that night, the princess, knowing her best chances for reaching her dearest Sigtrig, was sitting in that makeshift prison. Secretly, she freed Hereward and sent him to Waterford. Now, upon his release, though, the Cornish princess looked him in his one brown and one blue eye and gave him a ring to give to Sigtrig to prove it was her calling him to come save her. So now free... Hereward set sail immediately. Now, upon his return to Cornwall, instead of, you know, storming the complex where the princess was, Hereward decided to send word of the Danish prince's arrival from Ireland, specifically meant to inspire rashness and, and even anger from Hako. Unfortunately, all he heard was the word that Hako's wedding to the princess was being immediately pushed forward to two days from then. It seems Hako was either head over heels for this lady, or he felt just a smidge threatened and wanted to consecrate this thing before it was too late. In light of this news, Sigtrig of Waterford jumped the gun, and he sent a contingent of his finest warriors to interrupt the festivities leading up to the wedding and bring back his bride-to-be. Unfortunately, Hako caught wind of the approaching band of men and had them promptly captured and thrown in prison. The Cornish king did send word that as soon as the wedding took place, he would release Sigtrig's men as a measure of honor between them, and Sigtrig was satisfied, albeit smarting from the slight. However, Hereward decided to take matters into his own hands. Cue the hero music, right? He secreted away from Sigtrig and his camp, and, get this, in disguise, attended the feast prior to the wedding. Hereward learned that Hako planned to murder each and every prisoner, reneging on his deal with Sigtrig. But not before wowing the crowd with his unparalleled singing. Yeah, apparently Hereward was also quite the singing sensation on top of everything else, like, you know, bear wrestler. When Hako, unaware of who this minstrel in disguise really was, offered to reward him for his song, Hereward asked for just one thing, a cup of wine from the beautiful princess herself. When she walked it over to him, he took a long drink, emptying the cup, before slyly dropping into, it, into the cup a token that she had given him to deliver to Sigtrig. That token was the ring. After a tense moment, she looked into Hereward's two shaded eyes, and realization flooded her, a relief she could scarcely control. She did, however, control it, but just barely. She knew that Hereward had brought back her love. Hereward definitely made his way out of the feast and told Sigtrig of Hako's plan for his men and where it would take place. They quickly made their way there and arrived just before the execution. 
With his remaining men, along with Harroward by his side, they ambushed Hako and freed the Danish prisoners. In fact, according to Thomas Bullfinch's famous Bullfinch's Mythology, Harroward jumped out and cried, quote, Upon them, Danes, and set your brethren free, end quote. No doubt only meant to highlight what centuries of scholars and storytellers already knew about Harroward being one of England's first folk heroes, a freedom fighter for the ages. Other than that, Bullfinch's work, should be said, isn't much more than just another romanticized version of Harroward's life, worthy of entertainment only. Don't cast it aside, just know it's entertainment. But what's more is that Harroward is said to have removed Hako's head from, him, from the man's shoulders himself. With Hako this whole time was the princess, and Sigtrig wasted no time securing his betrothed and shuttling her to safety astride a horse walking between both himself and their savior, Harroward. The happy couple immediately set sail to Waterford, leaving Cornwall behind them forever. Harroward is said to have accompanied them, according to one story, and when asked to stay in Waterford and become a part of the community, along with just about anything else he wished to have, I'm sure, Harroward looked off into the horizon, seeing flashing images and hearing fleeting whispers of future heroism he had yet to accomplish, or at least that's kind of how the romanticism of these tall tales would lead you to believe he did. And alas, Harroward thanked Sigtrig, wished them both very well, and declined the generous offer. There was more to be done. More princesses to free, more bears to single-handedly smote. More, more to be done. There's another version of this tale as well, and it consists of his time in Ireland prior to coming back and freeing the princess but it involves a lot of battles and even a Duke of Munster, which is absurdly anachronistic as Ireland wouldn't acquire such a system for another century or more when the Normans push across the Irish Sea. So I'm just going to leave that story out. I'm going to leave it how I left it here in the episode. But it's interesting how the legend of Harroward is unfolding, isn't it? First, he's a punk who gets booted out of his house. A good man, it's said, is no bully. On his own, he saves a lady in trouble but doesn't do the stereotypical thing and take her as his own. He turns away, as if he simply did a good deed, and that's good enough. Well, a good man, it's said, will do good not for personal gain. Then we find Harroward becoming a renowned warrior in Cornwall before helping to free a princess, again, not for his own gain, but because he was bringing two people together. This was another honorable way to approach manhood. It's not always about you. A good man, it's said, sees a larger purpose. A good man serves others. He's also, in a sense, bucking a system, too, in this moment, this particular system being the betrothal system, but I don't think it's meant as such a specific commentary on that. Rather, I tend to think it's a commentary on his proclivity, to challenge any authority he feels to be unjust. And sometimes, well, sometimes authority is just plain wrong. A good man, it's said, sees authority for what it is, inherently corrupt, or at the very least, suspect. Again, legends, they're funny things. 
Sometimes less history and more lessons are the most important part, ironically, about history. Now, it's at this point that when Hereward is in Waterford, in either story, that Hereward receives a message. While he's been off in Cornwall and Ireland, far away from Lincolnshire, life has pressed ever onward back home. It wasn't some heroic moment gazing out into the sunset and seeing visions of future glory that got him to decline the offer and to stay and make a life in Waterford. No, it was troubling news from home. Hereward's father, the Thane Leofrich, passed away. Hereward made plans to sneak into Mercia, and his story is about to take a new turn. And I can't wait to tell you about it. 